So today I'll be filling in for Pastor Landon. They're at a marriage retreat, as I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so show me some grace. No pun intended. <clears throat> so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 till 10. I'm going to be reading from the CSB version, so it'll be a little different from, because everyone has a different version here, so, but the word of God is still the same across the board, and I'm really grateful for that. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 till 10, and if you get there, say, God is good. I like to do it previously, you know, like when you watch those sitcoms and it's like previously on this TV show, you know, and then they give you like a, uh, a little background of what happened. So here I'll just give like a previously of chapter 11. Paul confronted super apostles. Who are these super apostles you're asking? These are pretty much like the false teachers who had these encounters with God and they went out and boasted about them. And maybe there were true encounters, but they made those encounters about themselves, but not about Christ. And you can see that in our day and age. And they use this to be profitable, you know, as a false gospel, to make themselves be known. And this is so coming off to this chapter, Paul actually starts by saying boasting is necessary. Um, and we're going to find out what, the necessary of the boasting is about when we go into uh, chapter 12. So that's a synopsis of how, where Paul is going to be leading into, into uh, chapter 12. So since we're there, let's uh, read chapter 12, verses 1 till 10. <clears throat> boasting is necessary. It is not profitable but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know this man, whether in the body and out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weakness. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I will not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that you would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I would gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I can take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, 
persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. The Bible says that your word was breathed. And here we have it. It speaks truth to us. It's used for teaching, rebuking, and for encouraging the saints. And Father, I just pray that you would use me as just an empty vessel to bring forth the word to your people. I just pray that you'll calm my mind and that your Holy Spirit would guide me in what to say. I thank you and I praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those who are new here, we like to go verse by verse and just kind of go through the scripture and digest what it has to say. So let's go back to verse 1. Paul says, boasting is necessary, but it's not profitable. And Paul is talking about the super apostles who had visions just like him. And, and he's saying it's not necessary to boast about the visions you had. Because in essence, when you're boasting about the visions you have, the question you ask yourself is, am I boasting and bringing myself and making myself elevated other than Christ, because most of the visions that we get are from God and from Christ, and they reveal who God is to us. And so when we're boasting about visions and revelations, we're trying to tell people about who Christ really is, because when we get visions, the visions and revelations about God. And, <clears throat> and boasting is necessary, and Paul is saying, I don't want to boast about this, but since the super apostles are boasting about this, I'm going to boast about the visions and revelations that God told me that I'm going to share with you so that the gospel can be talked about. And talking about visions and, visions and revelations, um, we know that Daniel had a vision in Daniel 9. He had the vision about Christ's first coming and also Christ's second coming. And also John had visions and hence he wrote the book of, Reve of Revelation. And did they boast about these visions that they had in their time? No, they did not. Rather, because God revealed himself to these two individuals so that they could tell us about who God really is. And the more we get to know about God, the more we want to be more like him. And that's what the point of these visions and revelations are about. And then... Because Paul doesn't like to boast about himself because all the super apostles are talking about, like, look at what God showed me and how I went to this different realm. But Paul, in a different way, in verse 2, he doesn't even talk about himself. He talks in third person. And some, the first time when you read this, you may think, is Paul talking about someone else? But later on, as we go on, we know that it's Paul who went into the third heaven. But he talks in third person not to bring attention to himself. In other words, he's saying, I know of this other person who went to the third heaven. So boasting is necessary, not profitable. But I'll move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So verse 2, he says, I know of a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven. Well, third heaven. A lot of times, 
So third heaven, in, in verse 4, Paul goes to talk about what the third heaven is, which is paradise. I like how Lance talked about the thief on the cross. When he confessed his sin, Jesus said, you know, you're going to be with me in paradise. So that third heaven. But he still doesn't answer the question, why third heaven? So have any of you heard of the poem, um, It Is Dante's Inferno? Have you ever heard of that? It's, it's a poem written by Dante. It's about the seven levels of hell. So like the first level is like limbo, and, the, the, uh, and then the, uh, the second level is like lust, and then it keeps going down to gluttony, and you know, it just keeps going deeper and deeper, and it's like the worst sin you have, the deeper you go in hell. So the first time I read this, I thought, is like the different tiers of heaven, like how righteous you are? Like let's say you're a saint, like Paul, you're going to third heaven, and someone just like me, you're in first heaven. Is it like a little class? But it's, but it's not that. And remember in worship, I talked about the ark or the tabernacle. We go from the courtroom of praise. You know, that's a phase. And then we go into the holy place. And then we go into the holies of holies. So in the Old Testament, using that context in mind, the Old Testament, we had... They talked about the heavens. So the heavens can be the atmosphere. You know, you go into the mountains, you see like a bird flying. You see it from, from, from down you know, to the earth. That's the first heaven, which is our atmosphere, similar to the courtroom of praise. You can still, God's presence is still there, you know. And then the second heaven, in uh, the book of Psalm, it says, I look upon the heavens, which is the stars, the universe, the cosmos where our stars are, that's the second heaven. But what's the third heaven? Similar to the tabernacle, the third heaven is the holy of holies. That is where God resides. And this is where Paul was, the third heaven. This is where God resides. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, the holy of the most holy places. Even the angels themselves had to cover their eyes because they couldn't see God's full glory because his whole throne room was full of his glory. So this is where Paul is, the third heaven. And he still doesn't want to boast about this. He just says, yeah, I was there. But he doesn't go in and make a big fuss about it because it's about humility. Because the super apostles would have made a big fuss about this, about going to the third heaven and look at what I saw and all these miraculous things I've seen. But Paul, out of humility, says he was in the third heaven. So <clears throat> what does Paul, and to talk about Paul's humility here, he says, I was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. So. This whole time he's been writing the book of Corinthians, Romans. He was also in the book of Acts. You know, this has been going on for so many years. But this is when he brings it up. And he talks about it so nonchalantly, you know. And many times we as Christians go through experiences with the Lord. And out of pride, we tend to go out and tell people, look at what experience with the Lord I saw this beam of light come in through, you know, and this earthquake, and God was there, and, you know, 
But Paul, he didn't, he didn't, he, to him, that was his own intimate time he had with the Lord, and it happened 14 years ago. To Paul, it's not that he didn't want to share what he went through. To Paul, the gospel was priority. If his visions that he had with the Lord came before the gospel, he didn't want to share that. He wanted the gospel to be the main point. But now he had to bring it forth because all the super apostles were all coming up with these different encounters that they had with different, you know, visions and revelations. And he had to come in and tell them, this is the truth that I experienced with God himself. So let's move on to verse 3 here. And Paul says, I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up in paradise. So we know that the third heaven is paradise, which is where God is. And Paul, like when you read this, Paul is like, in the body, out of the body, I do not know, in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he goes on to say the same thing. Whether this person was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. And the speculation, you know, like those uh, animations, you know, like, like the uh, Looney Tunes where one of the characters is knocked out cold and he rises up and he can still see his body and it's like his spirit. You know, I like, that's what comes to my mind is like, was that how Paul went? But Paul here says, I don't even know if I was in my body or out of my body. I just don't know. And this shows the authenticity of his experience and he wants to share it with other people to let them know that he's not boasting out of this. He's actually giving an actual clear representation of his experience with the Lord in the third heaven. But we don't know. As Paul says, he doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. He doesn't know. But in verse 4, this is what Paul experiences in the third heaven. He heard... So verse 4 says, was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible words. Actually, before we go into there, so heaven. I, the, the thought that we have of heaven, and I feel like, our, like the media here doesn't do a good job depicting what heaven is. Like the cliche is, you know, we're going to be on a harp playing music, you know, for eternity or... It's, it's, it's what are we going to do when we go to heaven? You know, for some Christians, it seems very boring that we're just going to go just hang out in clouds and just do nothing for eternity. Like, what, like, what is heaven, you know? And to an, a non-Christian who's trying to, to, um, to make sense of what heaven is, is heaven is where God is going to, where we're going to reside with God for eternity, and even in the garden, what was like a depiction of paradise on earth in the book of um, Genesis, it was paradise. It was perfect. And that's like a depiction of what heaven is going to be like. But in that, God still gave Adam work to do. So we're still going to be doing things in heaven. In Revelation, John talks about the new heaven and new earth coming together and in that, for, mil- for like a thousand years, we're going to be doing things with God because God is a God who likes to share things with us and to do things with us. And to add context of what heaven's going to look like is Psalm verse 16, 
Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, In your presence, because third heaven is where God resides, in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. Have you ever experienced a fullness of joy? I don't think I have. I've only experienced just little increments of fullness of joy, but an absolute fullness of joy. Pleasures. Think about the best pleasures that you have ever experienced. Being in God's presence is the fullness and the full pleasures forevermore. And this is how heaven's going to be like. So going on where uh, verse 4 says, I was caught up in, into paradise and heard inexpressible words. Inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. Inexpressible words. Could this be because of our limited capability as of the human mind? You know, as humans, we're very limited. Do you ever know, like the uh, the the UV spectrum for for color? One is uh, when you're limited to just view just a wide range of colors, and even in music, we only have twelve keys, and it's just it just shows the limitations of our human nature, and. In expressive words, maybe Paul was just limited to understand what was being said in the third heaven. And, and Paul didn't indulge in trying to decipher what these words said, because as you can see, other religions were created by saying, you know, I, I heard these inexpressible words and I deciphered them and this is what it said. And it goes against what the gospel actually says. But Paul doesn't indulge in these inexpressible words to create a different gospel. He just said I had inexpressible words. And he goes on to say, which no human is allowed to speak. Um, again, in, in John, who wrote the book of Revelation, also had this same encounter with God where he had an inexpressible or uh, things that no human is allowed to speak. And is this because he was not allowed to speak it? I usually look at this as God, is not, God did not allow us to hear what this mighty man of God was supposed to say. And, but in time, we'll definitely get to know what these words were because we'll be spending eternity with God and we'll get to get to know God for eternity and he'll reveal his glory to us for eternity. But Paul doesn't dwell on this. He just says this is the things that I experience and doesn't dwell on it. But Paul says in verse 5 that I will boast about this person. So Paul says I'm going to boast about this person I'm talking about in third person because God allowed Paul to see these visions and Paul is boasting about this person who was able to go see these visions and he's not, again, making it about himself. Paul only boasts about this person because God allowed Paul to have these visions and revelations. Paul doesn't boast of himself except in his weaknesses. And we'll touch on Paul's weaknesses in later on as we keep going down the verses. So let's go to verse 6, and then we'll read verse 6 until like half of verse 7. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I'll spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. So 
profound experiences with God can become the main topic instead of the gospel, you know? So an example is you can go down the street and say, hey, excuse me, mister, do you want to know what Jesus did for you? I mean, he would be like, yes, I want to, but most of the time you won't want to hear anything to do with Christ. But if you come and tell him, let me tell you about this experience that I had with Jesus, and he came in this light beam and, and those earthquakes and those thunder and lightning, you may actually get their, you may grasp their attention. And what I'm trying to say is a lot of times we let the experience dictate who God is in our lives. It, we make it the main point instead of the gospel. And you can see so many authors in our, in our times write about these experiences they have about God, but they miss the main point, which is Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here, that Paul is trying to say that I'm not trying to boast about this because it will make me look like a fool, like these super apostles themselves. So he's trying to say, I'm not trying to make the experiences the like the like the main point of this. I'm trying to make God the main focus, Christ the main focus. One can have profound experiences with God and not boast. Proof of the experiences is a transformed life. An example is Moses. Moses is one of the only people who saw God's glory pass by. If you heard the story, God says, uh, Moses asked God, God, please show me your glory. Moses, and then God says, well, I'll show you my glory, but I want you to hide behind this rock. But I'll pass before you, and you'll see part of my glory. But when Moses comes down to, to, to the Israelites, he doesn't make that experience the main point but it's his transformed life. And what was his transformed life? He was glowing with God's glory. And sometimes when you have profound experiences with God, instead of telling people what your transformed experience is, show them. Show them how you walk. Show them how you talk. Show them how you love people. An, ex an example is there's a missionary, I forgot his name. He went to um, India in Asia. And he contracted a, I think it was like a cancer of the throat. And he wasn't able to speak after that. And after a while, they lost track because he was sent from um, Britain and they lost track of him. So they sent missionaries to go find him. And these missionaries kind of gave hope to find this guy and this, this, uh, this uh, missionary. And so these missionaries who came to find this mission who had this throat cancer, were trying to tell these native um, Indians in Asia about who Christ is. And they're like, oh, we actually do know who Christ is. Come, we'll come show you who he is. And guess who they went to point these missionaries to was this missionary who was missing this whole time, who couldn't speak. So the question is, how was this missionary who, was, who, wasn't, who wasn't able to speak show these people who Christ is without even talking? And that's is what Paul is trying to say is, I'm not trying to make this, this experience as the point. It's my transformed life is what I'm trying to show you. Jacob is also another example. You have heard about Jacob's ladder. Jacob, he was a very slimy guy. Um, and he was laying and he had this 
dream about this ladder ascending, and finally he had this wrestle with God, okay? He was wrestling with God to a point where his hip was dislocated. And this was a very pivotal moment for Jacob because at this moment he realized that he's wrestling with God Almighty and he doesn't make this encounter become the main topic, but it's the transformed life that becomes the topic because after that, he pretty much has a limp in his walk and he makes this limp become his transformed life because after that, he, he just becomes a transformed person. And because he wrestles with God, because the story goes, he said to God when he figured out that he was wrestling with God, he said, God, do not let go of me. Only let go of me after you bless me. And after that, he had a very transformed life. And we all have encounters with God. But I would encourage you that I want your, I, want, I don't want it to become the encounter, but I want your life to become transformed so that the world can see the light that shines within you, which is Christ. So we pick up halfway from verse 7 where it ended. Um, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, so that I may not exalt myself, some, some versions say, so, I'm not, so not, I may not be conceited, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I will not exalt myself. So let's talk about a thorn in the flesh. So a thorn in the flesh is something that frustrates and causes trouble in life. So for Paul... So many scholars have speculated, like, what was Paul's thorn in his flesh? Um, some think it was probably an eye problem, because if you remember when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to, to uh, Damascus, you know, he was blinded by, by uh, Jesus' glory and his light. And he, he, he wasn't able to see for a little while. And I feel like after he recovered, some of the scholars think, like, because of that encounter, he, is, like, he had an eye problem. And some scholars think that it was lust because Paul wasn't married um, during his uh, apostle duty because he's, he's known for being single. And, and the bigger conclusion is, is just depression because if you realize, Paul just went through a lot. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was put in jail, he was hungry, and he was just pretty much stripped of comfort. Um, and many of the apostles actually went through very, really deep, dark depression because of your preaching the gospel um, to many, many people, and Satan doesn't like that, the enemy doesn't like that, and he'll use everything to deter you from accomplishing the gospel. And, and the question is, to us, what is, what is the thorn in our flesh? Sometimes it can be things that you struggle with. It can be a temptation. It can be a, a weakness that you experience that you have brought to God over and over again, but it's not going away because it's, it's like an irritation that you have. Um, sometimes it can even just be an illness that, you're, that you've been struggling with all your life, 
Um, and even to, to make this worse for Paul is, it says, a messenger of Satan was sent to torment me so that I will not exalt myself. So a message of Satan, this, this is just, this makes it worse. And this, this kind of goes into the spiritual warfare and spiritual realm of things. And as Landon covered in the previous points of uh, Corinthians, where it talks about Satan being the prince of this age. We know that Satan pretty much runs most of the things here. And an example is the book of Job. You remember, Satan had to ask Job, I mean, Satan had to ask God for permission for, for him to come and antagonize Job. And similarly here, it's the same thing with Paul. Satan still had to ask permission for, for him to come and torment Paul with his thorn in his flesh. And... <clears throat> and, and God blesses us, actually, God blesses us too much. So Satan says, take away all the blessings that you have given him and just see he won't worship you. And many times, and, and the fact of the matter is, it's actually true sometimes when, when we're stripped away from the comforts, the blessings that God gives us. It's true, we, we, we may actually curse God. But a good example is with Job, he really didn't. He still kept glorifying God. And <clears throat> the main point is we know that God is our Father and is continually going to keep blessing us. And because of his son, Jesus, he, he looks at us as his son, Christ, because in his eyes, we are pure. But when we are stripped of comfort or when a thorn is put before us, we are yet to worship God as we ought to be. And <clears throat> to talk about a message of Satan, I like to add perspective to what is happening sometimes in this world and in this day and age. So I'm gonna use a triangle here. I'm gonna say the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? Is the world for God? No, it's not. Is our flesh for God? No. Is the devil for God? No. So the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Satan, is the prince of this day and age, and he pretty much controls most of the things that are happening here. So because we're in the world, Jesus says we're gonna have, we're gonna be, we're gonna have trials and tribulations in this world, okay? Now, the flesh. The flesh is continuously rebelling against God, okay? And the flesh and the world work together. The world says, look at that really nice donut there. Don't you want to have it? The flesh will say, yes, I do actually want to have it. You know? So they work hand in hand with one another. Now the devil comes in, which is in the top, and he works between the flesh, the world, and the devil. You know? And this is where the, 
the thorn in the flesh comes in. Your thorn in the flesh is in the world, and this world is broken. It's cursed when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. So this world is cursed, okay? The flesh is in rebellion against the Lord, and we just can't achieve holiness. We're all constantly rebelling. And then the devil uses all of this to just nag at us and be like, ooh, this thorn in your flesh, I'm gonna keep poking at it. And many times, it gets to a point where you just can't bear this and it can cause you to get into despair because the world, the flesh, and the devil are just working together against us. But we do realize we have the Holy Spirit to help us with this and we'll touch upon this as we keep going. So in verse eight, Paul said that he pleaded with the Lord three times to take this away from, from him. Paul, and Paul's prayer wasn't answered the first time he prayed about this, the second time he prayed about this, even the 90th time he prayed about this. And many times we pray about something. It can be an illness, it can be a hindrance that we face, but God doesn't take this away from us. This reminds me of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he was in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, this is very similar. He pleaded with, with, with God in heaven, please, if it is possible, would you please take this cup away from me? And Paul is doing the same thing here. He's, he's pleading three times, and three times in the Greek and Hebrew. It's not that you pray three times. It's, it's an emphasis of I've done this repeatedly so many times, but it hasn't gone away from me. And sometimes we lose heart because we pray about something that we're generally struggling with, but God doesn't take it away. The world says, I can offer you something better, but in our, in our, in our spirits, we know it's not the right thing to do. And our flesh craves what the world is giving us, and Satan comes in and just says, just try it. You know, you tried it last time, it will work, you know? And you can just see this cycle going on and on and on, and it can cause a man to fall into despair or sometimes depression because there's no hope. He feels like there's no hope because there's constant things are continually against us. And at times, a person can do everything right. You know, spiritually, your relationship with God is good. You're reading your Bible every day. You're praying. You're fasting. You're loving on people. You're like, oh, I'm good. Physically, you're eating right, you're going to the doctor to, if you're having an illness to, to validate like your health conditions that tell you what's going on and they tell you do this and these things. You're sleeping right, you're exercising, you know, you're doing everything right. But still, the world, the flesh, and the devil are still against you. Mentally, you're doing everything right. You're talking to someone, you're praying, you're journaling, you're even going to therapy. Still things are not right, you know? And as a Christian, things like this happen where you're doing everything right, but you just can't shake this thorn away. But God still doesn't answer the prayer about the thorn. However, in verses 9 and 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Um, and I'm just going to hang on here for a while. 
With all these analogies that I gave, the thorn is not able to go away. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made great in weakness. What is grace? As Christians, we know what grace is. In simple terms, grace is God's unmerited favor and empowerment for salvation and daily sanctification. We are saved by faith. We're saved through grace, by faith through grace. But grace here is the empowerment to do God's will. It's the empowerment to do. Here it's, in the Greek word, the, the, uh, the grace here is charis. It's where we get our word charisma. You know, it's, 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 it's to have the charisma to do because sometimes you don't feel like doing something, you know. It's similar to like if you've been, um, if I've had a bad habit of eating junk food and now you know the right thing to do is to eat healthy food, to break that habit, this is where you need that grace, that charis is the ability to do the good thing, which is to eat more healthy or to have more fellowship with God, is to do. And, and you can use this for simple things to be a parent or to be a good teacher or to be a good employee because sometimes they don't have that, that empowerment to do it. And this, 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 and this word grace is the empowerment to do. And the book of James chapter four, verse six says, uh, not James, but in, in James it says, you know, if you do not, uh, if you lack wisdom, just ask. And sometimes when we're struggling spiritually, physically and mentally, God just says, just come before me and just ask for wisdom and I'll give it to you. And, and this grace that God says is sufficient and sufficient means it's enough for you. And he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And this world is just full of evil. Like I talked about the world, the flesh and the devil. This world is just full of evil and evil desires. And we, are, we will fail. And the thing is when we fail, it's like what do we do with a failure? We, 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 can't, we can't indulge in the failures because that way it gives room for the enemy to come in and condemn us. But what grace says is it gives us the assurance to go before God's throne room and ask for forgiveness and go at it again because we're humans and we will fail. And that's what grace empowers us to do is to come before God over and over and over again even though we fail multiple times. And grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Everything we do is to be like Christ because that's the main goal because in Colossians, it says, God says, be holy like I am holy. How do we achieve that? And that's where grace comes in. Grace says, if you want to be like Christ, you have to put on grace because we will fail and how you handle that failure is coming back up and saying, I'm gonna give this a try and fix your eyes upon Jesus. And grace upon grace upon grace is what we use in our daily sanctification. Because when we become a Christian, it is a daily walk with Christ. It's daily sanctification. We're not gonna be perfect. 
We're only going to be perfect is when we're absent from this body, this flesh, and when we're one with God, that's the only time we're going to achieve perfection is daily sanctification. And Paul talks about, I will, I, will, I will read the rest of the verses here and conclude with the main topic of grace upon grace. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me so I can take pleasure in my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, I am strong. And grammatically, this doesn't make sense. When I'm weak, I am strong. It's, it's kind of like that Sunday school song where it makes more sense. It says, when I'm weak, then he is strong. But here it says, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is where grace comes in. The book of James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do you activate this grace? How, like, excuse me. Tangibly, how, like, what's a practical way of activating this grace? Um, when I first moved to this nation, uh, most of you know I'm not from here, I'm, I'm from Uganda. And before we had uh, like the really cool technology that we have here, I had to get a calling card. And you had to scratch off the card, put in the number, and then dial in. I used to call my mom back in Uganda. And grace is like that calling card. You know, you, in order to activate the grace to call, like my mom, let's say, is an analogy of who God is, you have to get the card and activate it by inserting it into your phone, dialing the number, and then calling and asking for help. It's activating that card. And to activate, it's like you have to have faith, you have to believe, and after that, you have to ask. And we, we put faith in so many things. We put faith in people, we put faith in even science. And the best description is, I love science. I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer, and science is something I like to indulge in because it makes the equipment that I build work. An example is gravity. We don't see gravity, but we have faith in it. We see what it does. And we all know if I'm to pick up this pen and drop it, we all know what's going to happen. It drops. And because of science, there's a thesis you make. You say, you make calculations, and the thesis becomes the statement, which is when you pick up a pen and you, you drop it, it drops because calculations have been done, and a pen drops at 9.8 um, <clears throat> meters a second. That's how gravity is, works. Um, but we don't see it, but we still have faith that it works. An example is your car. When you jump in, you have faith that when I turn my key, it'll work. But as uh, car people like I and even Tony, we know how it works. When you turn your key, it sends a, a signal to your battery to uh, go up, turn a motor to crank your engine, dump fuel in, your car starts, and vroom, your car is started. But for a normal person, you just have faith that it works. 
But the main person who knows how everything works is God. And we just have to have faith to activate grace and know that he is for us. And we just have to have faith. And Hebrews 11 talks about having faith. And we have to have faith. We have to believe and we have to ask. Grace upon grace upon grace. And sometimes you just do everything right and you don't know how to move on. And it's just hard to to just do simple tasks. But God gives grace to the humble. And to be humble, sometimes you just have to come before God honestly and just say, I do not know how to do this. I need help. And that's where God will give you the grace, which is going to be sufficient. And sometimes God gives us this thorn in our flesh to just keep us humble. And he gives us this thorn so that we can constantly come to him daily and ask him for this grace daily and for the daily bread. And to conclude this, I'm going to conclude it with a poem. Uh, most of you know I, I like poetry. And it just brings it all together. This poem is called To Be Known and Fully Know. That feeling of not getting to the unreachable. Challenges do arise to become great, but unbelief hinders goodness. Temptations to give in to despair lurks in the facade of deceit. Silence in the loathsome cries is a, uh, is a common noun. Embrace the omnipresence in those times one seems to be deaf or mute. The Most High still speaks through his word. Strength, my Father, I do seek and ask to love, truly love. Selfish ambitions in high doses have numbed senses to defy. Numbed, <clears throat> excuse me, selfish ambitions in high doses have numbed senses to the definition of moderation. Indulgence in things below kills the soul in a slow bleed in, in every partake. Recovery from the dirt by soaking clothes in bleach does not whiten these garments in the presence of the king. Things done to whiten garments are justifiable by the flesh, however void. Adrift into the unknown space to find amazing grace to plead for my case. The accuser denotes the uncleanness, but before the father, through the son, I am blameless. Teach me, O oh God, to remember your thoughts towards your children, countless like the grains of beaming stars. Thus, filling a blank canvas of the expanse in the galaxy. Shalom for a complete rest I do seek. Desire the action of a soul to be meek. An invitation is given to dine on your table in, rem in remembrance and awe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that hearts were kindled and seeds were sown. We are humans and we live in a broken world. Our flesh is a rebellion against you. And the enemy, the devil, wants us to fall continually and wants to cut off relationship with you. And Lord, I want to pray for 
brothers and sisters in here that just feel like the thorn of the flesh is just too much for them to even have communion with you. Father God, I just pray that they will have an encounter with you to where they'll be able to commune with you again, to have fellowship with you again. Would you just show them who you are, Lord? This world can be so hard and so tough, and sometimes it can just be someone coming to them and just sharing bread or giving them and saying, I hope you have a good day. I just pray that you watch over your flock, Father, and that you will just have them have a good week that's coming up and that this word that has been shared today, that it will just ruminate in their hearts and that they will meditate on it. Father, I thank you and I pray for the rest of the church congregation that are at the marriage retreat. I just pray that they'll be blessed by it, Father. I pray all this in your name. Amen.